Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. You died here today, you understand? You're Ombre Nuevo, a new man. Now, give that new life to me. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, as always. Today's episode is Libertad o Muerte, our third episode on Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker from 2010. Snake rendezvous with the Sandinistas in Costa Rica, and boy, will we have a lot to say about that. But first, our spoiler warning. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Merrill marries. We know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. I did want to give a couple quick announcements up top uh, in terms of the Patreon, patreon.com slash nuclear bomb. We are just 10 patrons away from unlocking extra episodes for both this and my Lord of the Rings podcast. So check that out. Uh, speaking of Lord of the Rings, we are about halfway through the Fellowship of the Ring and just dropped the Council of Elrond episode and a special bonus episode uh, discussing the teaser trailer for the new Amazon series, The Rings of Power. And lastly, if you have been listening on Spotify, if you listen to any show uh, three times, I believe you can start leaving reviews on the Spotify app. Reviews help us get seen and found on the app. So if you're listening over there, please leave us a review. I just want to chime in real quick that I think The Rings of Power is an awful name. It is uh, pretty much the most basic-ass name they can come up with. Yeah, it's terrible. I'm thinking that... It's completely an SEO thing so that they can have rings in the title if they ever have to drop the Lord of the Rings yeah. from like a tweet because it's too many characters or something like that. Terrible. It doesn't make it any better. Snake, the professor said he's got the Sandinistas on his side. Said you should get in touch with the FSLN Commandante. <laughs> Do they know they're backed by the KGB? Nah. As far as they know, they're really fighting for the revolution. Whatever the CIA's up to in Costa Rica... The professor wants it stopped. We need to find out what that something is. Our last Peace Walker episode ended with Kaz and Snake discovering that Codessa, or the CIA, was smuggling nukes into Costa Rica and moving them up into the mountains of Irazu. The two hop on a radio call to try and figure things out. Why would America want to move nukes here, and why might Costa Rica let them, if they even know about it? Bringing in nukes would be a violation of the 1969 Tatla Tetloko Treaty, which is based on Japan's three non-nuclear principles as articulated by Prime Minister Sato in 1964, though some may argue this idea originally came from General MacArthur. These principles are non-possession, non-production, and non-introduction of nuclear weapons. Worth noting, PM Sato was also pro-nuclearization for Japan, at least insofar as energy concerns. I won't proclaim to be an expert on Japanese politics, historically or currently, but here we can already see a struggle sans frontiers, with internal and external forces at work. The Allied occupation forces clearly did not want Japan to arm itself with nuclear weapons following the war, while Japan itself was trying to grapple with the war crimes at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, bombings that would shape Japanese culture going forward. The three non-nuclear principles would eventually be formulated into the Four Pillars Nuclear Policy, again by Sato, which set forth the following. 
pursuit of nuclear power for peaceful purposes only, global nuclear disarmament, which is something Metal Gear has already declared a failure for all nations, reliance on the U.S. nuclear deterrent for Japan's sake, and the three existing nuclear principles articulated above. Politics aside, Kaz does get to some more relevant banter. It's our first chance to interact with Mother Base, as we described in our introductory episode. Kaz says the plant is a little beaten down, but that he will make it a heaven, and that it can be a haven for them and their unit. Already we see that heaven-haven wordplay that popped up in MGS4, and we're just a few steps away from outer heaven proper, Big Boss's dream. The game will give you tutorials on each aspect of Mother Base as you unlock them, which we will track as we progress through the game. It's all menu-driven, but you'll get the lowdown on assigning troops, building weapons, and deploying combat units as they come up. This leads us into our second mission, locating the local guerrilla force and their commandante. They had fled the Somoza regime in Nicaragua and are Snake's best bet for getting a lay of the land and what all is happening at the border. When Snake had taken the radio station in the previous episode, he picked up a photo showing an old commander, as well as his younger daughter, who looks to be a young adult, and a little boy, Amanda and Chico, as we will learn. Before you get started, though, you can also have a quick chat with Paz, who's now officially part of the support staff on call, though she cannot be assigned to any of MSF's teams. Paz will provide info on the maps and geopolitics in Costa Rica in her briefing files. In addition to codec calls, the player can listen to audio cassette tapes prior to missions from Kaz, Paz, and later Amanda, Chico, Huey, and more. These cassette tapes will give you useful intel heading into your missions and are a version of the codec calls from previous games, letting the player go down rabbit holes of information and exposition. The tapes are also often two-way. That is, they are a conversation between the person and Snake and not just Snake listening to a podcast. That would come later. And it's already come at MGS4. Yeah, but I, specifically that would come in, in V. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. Snake is still unsure about pa- Paz's involvement in all this. Something doesn't sit right with him, but he's going to forge ahead regardless. He and Paz have a fun little chat in which she drops the Kant quote about how peace is not the natural state of man from the game's intro. Snake, meanwhile, gets to make a joke about a man he met who could photosynthesize sunlight into energy. But I'll just end that digression there. As we head into the mission proper, we get more information about the Costa Rican Civil War, which occurred over 44 days in 1948 and eventually led to the abolition of its army. This is also when we start hearing Che Guevara's name drop, which will be a big running theme in this game. We are going to end today's episode unraveling the Che of it all, so stay tuned. This mission officially kicks off the first chapter, A Country Without an Army. You have to work through a couple jungle maps and swamp maps to make it to the docks where the Sandinistas are being detained. This is Snake's first opportunity to use Fulton Recovery in the field as well, though you will have unlocked a Fulton side-op after the first mission, in which you must use an MSF soldier that isn't Snake. At the docks, you will have to clear four to five sentries guarding the area before you can free the resistance fighters. Snake finds them in the second floor of the boathouse, and upon busting open the door, he is immediately greeted by... Stay away! Don't touch me! Get away! Guinness! The Che! No, I'm not Che, says Snake, but he's here to get them out all the same. Che, of course, was dead by 1974. Snake is looking for El Viejo, the comandante of the guerrillas, but his daughter lets him know that El Viejo is dead. She's now in charge. And who is she? 
Well, it's Amanda Valenciano Libre, voiced by Gray Delisle, who we will break down right meow. I owe you one, but I prefer cigarettes, you know. Amanda continues the long line of martial heroines in the Metal Gear Solid games, a meme that goes all the way back to Meryl, Olga, or even the boss. Her character design, which includes a black tank top, military fatigues, and a short bob of hair are all very evocative of Meryl specifically, though her hair is brunette and she wears a yellow bandana around her neck, not unlike Kaz. Amanda as a name means lovable or worthy of love. Though she is not a romantic interest of anyone in this game, the love being referred to could be the kind that blooms on the battlefield. She is the heir apparent to her unit and after her albiejo had been killed. The unit now looks to her, and at first she doesn't feel like they respect her like they did her father. This will all change over the course of the game, and in Chapter 4, we will see her men truly rally around and love her in the end. Valenciano derives from Valencia, which translates to valor, again likely speaking to her martial prowess and bravery in battle. And libre is the word for free or freedom, which is what she is fighting for as part of the Sandinista National Liberation Front, or FSLN. And not just freedom from the CIA, but also not as a tool of the KGB or anyone else. Those two names, Valenciano Libre, combined also evoke the concept of a freedom fighter, which very much speaks to her character. As we'll learn in this game, Amanda's father, called El Viejo, was a Sandinista comandante who fought alongside Augusto Sandino in Nicaragua before he, Sandino, was killed by the U.S.-backed Somoza regime. El Viejo would eventually flee Nicaragua and take refuge across the border in Costa Rica, where he'd form an uneasy alliance with the KGB. The KGB provided them with a facility where they could produce and sell drugs to raise money for El Revolucion. There's not much else on El Viejo, but based on, the de- on his design art and the photographs Snake discovers, he does remind me a lot of The End from MGS3, though that comparison is entirely incidental. Amanda and her younger brother were among FSLN troops that fled to Costa Rica, though she kept the drug trafficking part a secret from Chico. Her father would be killed shortly thereafter, and Amanda by default took charge of her compas, though they called her Amanda and not Comandante, though phonetically there is an Omanda Amanda buried in the word Comandante. This will all resolve by the end of her arc. Amanda has little-known history beyond the events of this game. She gets mentioned in MGSV, but is not seen or heard. It's possible an earlier script had her involved in some of the African theater in The Phantom Pain, in which she contracts Diamond Dogs for business, but nothing elsewise. It's just unfortunate. I think she, would, she should have come back. Like, I, I get, I, politically, I get there's no, there's no sense to it, but like, I, I think they bent over backwards more to get worse characters back in these games, so I wouldn't have minded it. Yeah, no, I think she's one of the strongest characters in Peace Walker. And I, I would have liked to see a little more of just basically everyone in this game yeah. kind of carry on into the Phantom Pain. Um, none of them really do, aside from Kaz. Uh, Paz and Chico make it into Ground Zeroes, but, you know, doesn't go well for them. And then everyone else, as we'll explain in the coming games that we cover, basically abandon MSF or just go on their own way without much knowledge of what comes after. I guess Huey's in it. but Yeah, our favorite. And Strange Love. But yeah, uh, that's the thing. I wish there had been more because, you know, most of the characters you recruit in this game are, are uh, you know, random characters. Like they're not characters. So really, I, it would have been nice if you could have gotten because, you know, a big part of, of Phantom Pain is, is rebuilding uh, MSF. 
And like, it would have been nice to get characters that you already knew to come back, but I don't know. It's a missed opportunity, I feel like. Yeah. And I think it also is just because Amanda is one of the better characters. Yeah. Um, she's enjoyable. She has a good rapport with Snake. She has her own kind of, she's almost the big boss of her unit in a way. Mm. Uh, so there's definitely like some themes you can play on. I think later in the story of Peace Walker, it's kind of a tangent from the main plot thread, but it's actually about her. Um, possibly going to Africa, maybe even the Congo, to do her own kind of freedom fighting of sorts, which is both evocative of Shay, um, but also kind of where Snake ends up going in the Phantom Pain itself. And I think that's yeah. what the original script for the Phantom Pain was alluding to when they had her more involved. More involved at all. <laughs> the cutscene continues with Snake giving a cover story that he's a wildlife and bird photographer. Anyone who listened to our 007 episode should know this reference. The real-life James Bond was a bird photographer who was a close friend to Ian Fleming and published a book, Birds of the West Indies, in 1936. Amanda confirms that the CIA is moving weapons into Costa Rica, and so much so that it resembles the U.S. bringing in military equipment into Vietnam via Da Nang. And she says the CIA is planning to do in Costa Rica what they did in Chile, which, who boy... Nothing I can say here, especially in the space of a Metal Gear recap, can properly cover the horrors that America and the CIA specifically unleashed on Chile during the Cold War. I recommend Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, which goes very in-depth into all the war crimes, disappearances, tortures, and every other crime against humanity that the U.S.-backed Pinochet government committed. The U.S. had initially started meddling in Chilean affairs during the late 19th century, posturing against the U.K., who was also working to develop their own sphere of influence down there. Major U.S. corporations would take up space in Chile in the 1920s, sucking up valuable resources from the South American country. One of these companies was named Anaconda, which I only mention as it's yet another snake. These corporations, having taken control over much of Chile's natural resources, and GDP led to a rising labor movement and a socialist party. This led the U.S. to employ a bevy of tactics to prevent left-wing control in the country, such as funding opposition and propaganda, especially against leftist candidate Salvador Allende. Allende would wanted to maintain relations with Cuba and was critical of U.S. tampering in that country, worth highlighting since Cuba will be the first stop in MGSV. Allende would become president in 1970, and the U.S., led by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, started freaking the fuck out. They flat out wanted the overthrow of Allende and took a literal two-track method towards this. Trying to fund conservative right-wing candidates against Allende was one, and the other was literally funding a military coup by funneling support to agreeable military officers. Kissinger's five-part plan was to develop contacts and allies in the Chilean military, divide Allende support, run media campaigns against Allende, support non-communist parties in Chile, and question the validity of Allende's election. All of this should sound familiar, as the U.S. runs this playbook anytime a South American country nominates someone to the left of Bill Clinton. They run that playbook like they're like they're a mad, like there's someone playing Madden and running the uh, like Power O every every place. Just yeah, Relentless. it's your first down play. <laughs> we run it all the time. It's ridiculous. I think they've most recently been running it against Guatemala, maybe. Uh, maybe it's Honduras. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, it's probably going to be a new country. So uh, <laughs> who even knows? The coup would officially go down in 1973, which brought Augusto Pinochet to power. 
Though the CIA would deny direct involvement at the time, you'd have to have been a fool to believe it. Admissions of involvement would trickle out over time, but far too late to help the people of Chile. Pinochet would personally oversee the persecution of leftist and socialist groups in the country, including thousands of people who were executed or disappeared during his rule. He invoked a hard-right economic regime right out of the University of Chicago School of Thought, which outlawed unions and privatized state-owned businesses, with spare parts of the economy being sold off to Pinochet's cronies or U.S. interests. I really don't feel like continuing on further, because I just don't feel I can properly capture the horrible human rights abuses that happened under Pinochet without getting hopping mad. It's one of the darkest and least discussed hours of American foreign policy following World War II. But just take this to heart. The U.S. empire was why this all occurred, just so they could keep economic ties and prevent socialism from developing a stronghold in South America. It's vile, awful stuff, and this sort of history is why I'm an ardent leftist today. That's why they call it America's backyard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a quick aside, when Amanda refers to the UCLA in her dialogue, that stands for Unilaterally Controlled Latino Assets, which refers to the local proxies the CIA employs in Central and South America. You know, she also hates uh, Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and John Wooden. I mean, I'm no fan of the Golden Bears. Actually, I like Bill Walton. He, he, he seems like a cool dude. We love Bill Walton. Bill Walton would probably support her, so he's cool. Oh, yeah. He absolutely would. As, far, as good of a left-wing king as there is in that generation of NBA players. Yep. Insert photo of him and, and Larry Bird standing smiling outside of Eugene Debs' house. It's a great photo. Oh, man. If I remember, I feel like I can post that uh, picture with this episode. <laughs> it's close enough to topical. Sorry, that was a long digression. Back to Amanda, I guess. On top of the CIA's movements, she also lets us know that there is some sort of monster lurking in the mountains, which Chico will corroborate later. And her compas are leaderless and looking to her for answers, though she's not sure if she's up to the task. Sorry to interrupt, but leaders don't choose themselves. Neither do heroes. Amanda calls him cacique, or possibly the great cacique, which both translates to big boss and was the title of her alviejo. Snake appears to be picking up that meme from him. She relays intel that there is a mercenary base to the north, a factory from which she and her compas once ran drugs to fund their revolucion. The factory had been provided by the KGB. At this point, that flying, USS Enterprise-shaped drone from previous episode shows up, the Chrysalis. Snake takes the... takes a lightweight anti-tank weapon, or LAW, a rocket launcher of sorts, and dispatches some smaller drones, but one ends up making off with Chico. Amanda and her Sandinistas give pursuit, and Snake will follow close behind in the next mission. In mission three, Pursue Amanda, we get to see some more gameplay aspects come into focus. The game will constantly reuse maps, but will open up new paths as you progress through the missions. In this way, it mimics previous MGS games where you could work backwards to varying degrees before moving on ahead or finding new weapons that will open up new paths and maps. You'll also start finding prisoners of war or POWs located on maps, often tied up in yellow prisoner outfits. Extracting POWs is great for Mother Base as they often have higher stats than enemy soldiers. Documents can also be found on maps now, which include design specs for developing more powerful weapons and items. 
You'll eventually work your way through the factory Amanda alluded to earlier, and once there, you will be accosted by the LAV Type G, an armored vehicle surrounded by heavily armed special forces. The mission ends right before the battle, as is this game's SOP. The artillery battles are standalone missions. Which is very good. I'm very glad they did that because you really, the way that the, um, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the way that the equipment goes, like you really don't have enough on you to do boss fights and go back to sneaking missions. Like it's, it's just, I'm, I'm wondering how long it took them to come up with that, how much play testing. Yeah. And it, you generally want a completely different loadout than you do yeah. in your uh, stealth uh, missions as well. Before you start that next mission against the lab type G, Kaz will call in to let you know the mess hall team is all set up and you can assign personnel to it. This is the team that Kaz is the best fit for, a prelude to his hamburger mania we will see in the Phantom Pain. In fighting the lab type G, you have to either destroy the mech and the soldiers, or just neutralize the soldiers long enough for the pilot or commander to peek his head out. If you can subdue the pilot without destroying the mech, you will be able to recover the vehicle and add it to MSF's cavalry. The soldiers here are also heavily armored with helmets and body armor, so they are, they are no walk in the park either. These artillery battles will come up at several points through the game and will also be repurposed for side missions with the difficulty cranked up. To S-rank these, you will need to beat them non-lethally, which will require a lot of well-placed holdups and Fultons. The vehicles can run over and kill their own men, so you need to clear the battlefield for this to work. Yeah, I didn't even try it this time. I mean, I, I disabled guys when I could, but I I generally play these games, and I especially play this one... Um, like I come into it stealth, and I try stealth. And I, I go for non-lethal, and as soon as it everything becomes a danger, snake kills. That's how it's. That's how I can, and that's how I go for it. I think that's the best way to do it. If if you're not going for, specifically for non-lethal, like yeah. But I mean, if you're gonna role play it, I feel like that's how you would role play it. Yeah. Um. I when I talk about doing these and fultoning everyone away and completely non-lethal, these are specifically going for S ranks. Hmm. I don't even know if in this game you can beat any of these vehicle battles, not lethally the first time uh, because you don't have enough Fultons or um, weapons enough to do enough damage that quickly. Um, So you're only doing these non-lethally specifically for um, the S rank or to recover the vehicle Mm -hmm. in the end, but you don't have to be non-lethal for that. You just have to, uh, get the commander to pop out of the tank so you can uh, you can kill him or tranquilize him, but that way you recover the vehicle with whatever damage it took. And you can, we should mention, you can still Fulton injured people. Like, you can shoot mm-hmm. them a few times and, and still Fulton them, which is, um, it'd be fast, but it's it's viable. Yeah, so there's, like, if they are, like, on the precipice of dying, um, they'll have, like, a red skull, like, kind of floating over their corpse, saying, like, you have a few seconds Mm. to get them out of here, and if you do, you can recover them. Um, There's also uh, a similar thing for non-lethal extractions for some side ops where there will be a blue skull over them, Um, but it's the same kind of idea. You do have a chance to recover, and I think this idea of will be a little more developed in the Phantom Pain where the Fulton system gets a lot more realistic Mm. in terms of when you can extract soldiers, how healthy they are in terms of their extraction and all that stuff. After the battle, you have another 2D sequence against the drones using the rocket launcher to save Amanda, though she breaks her leg in the ordeal. She orders Snake to go on and find Chico, even saying he, he should kill Chico if he can't save him. Boss says nah, though. That's a promise I can't make. Why? 
Amanda, we gave up our homes, but we're still alive. We're still fighting. And there's always another reason to keep on living. This reminds me of a Tyrion Lannister quote from early in A Game of Thrones, the book, or the second episode of the television series. His brother Jamie quips that if he had been disabled like Bran Stark, he would prefer death. Wait, how is Bran disabled, Jamie? A good, clean death instead of being a grotesquerie, Jamie says. Tyrion objects, though. Speaking for the grotesque, death is very final, but life, life is full of possibility. That's just me greasing the wheels, because when we eventually do a deep dive into MSF proper, the Aswaf analogs are going to be off the charts. Uh, a Song of Ice and Fire analogs, I call it Aswaf because I have brain poisoning. Because it's a funny sounding word. Sounds like Aswaffles. Before starting the next mission to rescue Chico, Amanda agrees to join MSF. Due to her injuries, Kaz officially creates a sick bay for injured soldiers, as well as a medical team that will help soldiers heal and also allow you to develop health items. Snake eventually makes his way to a nearby village where Chico is being held. Several soldiers will be patrolling the village, and Snake will have to find the houses with blue doors, which are being used as holding cells. If Snake peeps in on the wrong door, he might overhear a man beating off. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you'll find Chico, which will end the mission and also allow us to do our Chico deep dive. Everyone treats me like a child. I, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. I'm not a kid, I'm 12. Chico's actual name is Ricardo Valenciano Libre, but he goes by Chico to everyone around him, which is the Spanish word for boy. He's perhaps singled out as such since he appears to be the only child soldier in the group. Amanda and El Viejo had no choice but to bring him across the border when they fled the Somoza regime. The child soldier theme, which has roots all the way back in the MSX Metal Gears, gets more of a face here than in any previous game. Usually we meet people who were child soldiers, but Chico will now be an active part of our story and a huge catalyst into MGSV. His reconnaissance and subsequent capture and death set into motion Skullface's plan to take down Big Boss's unit. But of course, that will have to wait until Ground Zeroes. Chico will be your best contact on the environments in Peace Walker. Narratively, whenever he and Amanda fought, he would sneak away and explore the lands. He's also really into weird creatures such as cryptids and dinosaurs, which ties into the Monster Hunter crossover. Snake gives Chico the photographer cover story, though this time he calls himself a war photographer. Chico even notes that Snake has the same camera as El Che. Chico knows the lay of the land well and describes the transport route Snake is trying to investigate through the marshes, onto a train, and finally a truck up to the mountains. But the path is guarded by El Basilisco, the monster Amanda also alluded to. El Basilisco means the king of snakes, and Chico is referring to Peace Walker specifically. But it could also be doublespeak, as the Peace Walker mech is controlled by an AI pattern after the boss, who was a king of snakes in her own way, both to Naked Snake and her Cobra unit. Chico gives us a little more info about himself, how he was treated like a kid by his compas and not taken seriously, hiding the drug smuggling from him, namely being his evidence. Chico is also feeling a lot of shame as he gave up his compas location after being tortured, which makes him want to not go on living. I 
wish I was dead. Okay, then. I'll put you out of your misery. What? Any last words? Shoot. You're only going to kill a man. I just wasted a bullet. Don't waste your life. Big Boss declares Chico un hombre nuevo, a new man, stealing Brian's bit. He invites Chico to MSF since it might be safer following him giving up his compas. In this moment, we do see Big Boss as a compassionate leader, but he's also literally recruiting child soldiers now, a meme that will take hold in this and all future iterations of Outer Heaven. Oh, but no smoking for the kid. Remember, real heroes are never as polished as the legends that surround them. You got it, boss. Uh, Snake is fine. What's that? That clip allows me to once again mention one of my favorite films and Metal Gear Touchstones, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The idea of legend and man not being in sync has been part of our coverage since the first solid title, and this is as close as we get to an explicit callout of that film. In that clip, you heard Snake surprise Chico by Fultoning him out of the area, which he does not take too kindly. Back at MSF, Snake catches up with everyone. He tells Amanda not to treat Chico like a kid, but as an adult and as a soldier. Won't have any negative consequences going forward. (laughs) Chico chimes in that he can be useful to Snake. He knows a lot about wildlife as well as the enemy bases in the nearby area. This is impetus enough for Kaz to set up the intel team at Mother Base for such activities. We'll cut today's recap, though, because there's one last thing we want to discuss. Whoa, is that chess? Can I see it? Wow, the same kind of chair used! As this episode should have driven home, this game is rife with Che Guevara mentions and outright comparisons to Big Boss, which we want to take some time to unpack here and now. I'm sure anyone who has been listening to us knows that we are both socialists, and, well, in the words of Al Che, it's not my fault if reality is Marxist. We aren't going to do a full history on Che, at least not in this episode, mostly because we cannot do his revolutionary work justice in that short a time or in solely a Metal Gear context. But just real quickly, an overview. He was born on June 14, 1928, to a very politically left-wing-minded family, working with anti-fascists going all the way back to when he was 11. He would travel much of Latin America in his adolescence, observing the mass poverty left behind by Western colonialism. He would be in Guatemala when the CIA sponsored a coup there in 1954. There he would fight with the local militia before having to flee to Mexico, and is also where he would meet Fidel Castro. Castro had already previously led an attack against the U.S.-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista in Cuba and recruited Che to his cause. They would eventually kick off the revolution in Cuba in December 1956, and by the end of 1958, Che and Fidel had seized both Santa Clara and Santiago. Batista was forced to flee on January 1st, 1959. For anyone who has seen The Godfather Part Two, Michael Fredo and the rest being in Cuba for New Year's Eve is specifically calling to this moment. Che and Fidel had the unenviable task of building a socialist country just 90 miles from the U.S. empire. 
Che would become a citizen of Cuba and would become the head of Department of Industry in 1959, which entailed nationalizing U.S.-owned plantations, mines, factories, etc. But even so, Che would also take to working manual labor in the sugarcane fields and construction sites, which Amanda and Snake discuss in one of the audio cassette tapes. Che's lasting legacy, perhaps, comes from his desire to bring the struggle for liberation across the globe. In 1965, he would go to the Congo to train and fight there, and later he would do the same in Bolivia, though he'd eventually be killed there by the Bolivian military at the behest of the CIA. I mean, I think his legacy is more, almost as much as a, as a, almost a philosopher king kind of revolutionary. It's how you get a person like Sartre calling you the century's most complete human being, which is just a wonderful quote. And it's brought up in this game, as I think we've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. And because uh, we talk a lot about uh, Che, you know, fighting these revolutions, but he's also going to the UN. He's going mm-hmm. to other countries and establishing diplomatic ties between Cuba. Um, we definitely, especially being in the Western media are only given a very narrow and, you know, slanted definition of Che, which we'll talk about here in a second. That couldn't be a more skeletal outline of the man's life or work. I think something we need to talk about is how Westerners generally view Che, which is to say, like the fucking chauvinists we are. Anyone living in the Anglosphere, the US, UK, Western Europe, is constantly inundated with anti-communist propaganda from the moment they are born and including all the media they consume even to this day. Western view of Shea is no different, hypocritical takes at best or flat out lies at worst. The middle and right wings of America will label him a war criminal, murderer, homophobe, racist, etc. The whole smorgasbord of pejoratives, even though those terms more aptly describe the Western governments and media pushing them. There was also even a recent Netflix show that went viral because a character called Che Cuba's Hitler, which outraged everyone that didn't own a plantation in 1950s Cuba. And it's, it's just like he may have been a homophobe, you know. I mean, he was a man who was he was alive in the 50s, so a decent chance. You know, that's not, it's not good, but it's what are you going to do about it now? But more importantly, the the Hitler thing, that's such a it's such a banal neoliberal view of the world like anyone who gets popular support is a fascist like that's not what that means Mm -hmm. i mean they do it to uh, the democratic socialists here who are not revolutionaries i don't want to make that out but they also compare them to being authoritarian like the next stalin or hitler as well yeah because you know if if you get if you do things that that that, uh poor people want that means you're evil Mm -hmm. that would mean that you have to govern and and um you know do things and that's just that hold on now let's let's like it crazy here let's not do things when we govern. That's crazy. We literally have the mouthpiece of the presidency of the United States constantly telling us how it's stupid to want want them to do things. So I don't know. We've been cucked by American democracy for a long time now. Um, and a lot of people cheer it on. Fucking love it. What, you actually expect them to send us, you know, a $20 uh, at-home COVID test? That's impossible. Anyways, here's $800 billion for Israel to do an apartheid. I've been coming to the realization the last few years that I think it's it's mostly just that whole generation of liberals who their entire lives, their entire political lives are spent losing to Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And so now they're just like, well, that's how it works. We can't, we don't actually win. We can't actually do anything. I don't know. It's pathetic. Yeah. Loser mindset. They're all losers. Yeah. And they're going to lose again later this year and in two years from now. They're going to lose horribly in two years. Yeah. The only way they're not is if somebody jokingly said, and this isn't going to happen, but it would be very funny if DeSantis gets the nomination and Trump runs third party. 
Yeah. You'll get uh, Biden or whoever winning with like a, a 9% approval rating. Yeah, it, it, it's ridiculous. That'd be hilarious, but it won't happen. I mean, it's probably better than either Trump or DeSantis oh, yeah. winning, but like so <laughs> marginally little at this point. Well, uh, yeah, as, as this presidency has proven, there's just materially, there's not a huge difference. Mm-mm. Like, like we, we can, we can say that it's bad that, I don't know, it's, it's fucking pathetic. Like we, we can talk about how bad it is to put the, the racist in charge. And then when quote unquote, we're in charge, we don't do anything to undo anything the racist did. So it doesn't fucking matter. And speaking like what you were saying, maybe, you know, Che was a homophobe back in the 1950s. Um, what Joe Biden's uh, track record is in terms mm-hmm. of voting, uh, especially over the 80s and 90s, he's had more de- deleterious effects on the rights of queer people than Che ever would have. Um, so the, that's what I mean by the hypocritical, because even if they say like he had this belief or he had a speech where he articulated a kind of negative view, um, that's nowhere near as bad as the U.S. government actually having an institutional position that's pretty much the same thing, if not worse. Well, as, as we all know, Joe Biden has never been racist. Oh, yeah. He definitely did not help set up the carceral state um, as it exists today. Just pathetic. I don't know. It's a pathetic. It's, it's very. It's just depressing living within these are the people that, that represent our values to the world. Mm-hmm. And these are supposed to be the smart and good ones, right? Mm-hmm. Even those who have a more positive view of Shea and socialism will have seen his image be appropriated by the left wing here, treating his face as a brand that can be bought at your local Hot Topic. The iconography of Che is still powerful in the world, especially the global south, but here in the U.S. it is a marketing ploy. So what does that mean for Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker and Big Boss? Well, first, mad props to Hideo Kojima, who created a game for Western audiences that portrays Che in a positive light, and the U.S. unequivocally as warmongers. But it isn't just abstraction. Kojima shows a very fine and detailed understanding of Che's life and work, as he cites specific letters and books Che wrote, as well as the camera he famously used. Before Kojima was born, Che had visited Japan in 1959 to establish trade relations between Japan and the new Cuban government. During his visit, he snuck away to take a train up to Hiroshima to firsthand glance the destruction of that city via U.S. nuclear bombs. This is specifically called out in an audio cassette tape between Kaz and Snake, with Snake having nothing but reverence for this move, as Che's handlers did not want him going to the site. So, Brian, as someone who's played a lot more games, and specifically Western games and military action games, how did you feel seeing this kind of game? And maybe it's something that you realize now a little later as your, you know, philosophies have developed, but... I mean, no, I, I realized it in, in... I was in my early 20s when I played this. It was... I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to really describe because it's not something you see. The only other mentions of Che in video games I could think of is maybe he's mentioned in like black ops which is about as negative of a portrayal as you could imagine let me look that up actually so i can't think of any um any other games that he's maybe like tropico would be like a vague Mm -hmm. reference to him because that's sort of like kind of a tongue-in-cheek that kind of game i don't know just cause may have may have had like somewhat positive mentions of him i don't think i think just cause to its true credit, mostly tried to stay away from real life politics and, and was more just like it's just kind of a goofy. It's hard. It's hard to do like get really political when you have a 
a guy who can grapple onto an airplane and like elbow <laughs> drop it out of the sky, whatever the fuck. Like it's not, yeah, that's, that's not, that's probably smart. Have you seen any other games handle like other revolutionary leaders like Castro or Mandela or any of those folks? I can't imagine. I'm sure Assassin's Creed might've done something. No, goofy I, with they're something. not even, they, they don't, I don't think they've gotten that. I don't think there's any 20th century Assassin's Creed games. Again, probably intelligently, like just stay away from 20th century politics. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking up here. There's a game called Guerrilla War that was released in Japan as Guevara. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, as, a, as an SNK game. It was on the NES. The Guerrilla War followed the plot of two unnamed rebel commandos, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro in the Japanese version, as they raid an unnamed Caribbean island to free it from the rule of an unnamed tyrannical dictator. <laughs> to face an unnamed uh, intelligence agency. <laughs> well, that rules. And I think that's also something that the you know japanese culture has a different relationship to these revolutionary leaders and you know recently japan has kind of come more in line with kind of the us hegemonic view in terms of politics and stuff mm-hmm. but um especially in the wake of world war 2 they you know how other countries interact with cuba is just so different from how the us does and the us basically forces other countries to fall in line in terms of their relations with cuba Anyways, if anyone's played that game, send us an email, because I would love to know how that is. (laughs) Throughout this game, Snake himself holds Che in high regard, often saying he's not worthy of being mentioned in the same breath as Che. Snake uses the Satri term of complete man in describing him, where the whole Hombre Nuevo meme in this game takes form. Amanda, Chico, and her unit also hold Che up in the highest regards, and as you fight alongside them and the Sandinistas in this game, it's crystal clear that this is the righteous side. But it's not just that our characters hold reverence for him. Big Boss, as designed in this game, is specifically meant to evoke Che in his appearance and action. His look in this game, broad-shouldered, bearded snake in fatigues and a beret, is a direct take on the Che portrait everyone in the Western world has seen. And characters throughout the game mistake Big Boss for Che, not just for his looks, but in the way he carries himself. But most of all, Che is reflected in the way this game is designed. When Fidel and Che took Cuba, it was a small group of men who landed on their shores, which led to revolution and eventually nation and coalition building. That's pretty much where Snake and Ka start off with MSF, and you basically spend the entirety of this game doing grassroots organizing for the unit. MGSV perhaps hits this harder, realizing Che's dream of taking the revolution across the world, as Snake does so in Afghanistan and the Angola-Zaire border, the latter not far from where Che himself went back in the 60s. We talked about this, and this is what the, uh, it's, it's, it's the thing that I think makes this game stand out the most, is that it's the game where Snake turns into Che for 24 hours. It's great. I don't really, I mean, I feel like we've mentioned it so much at this point now that there's we're just sort of repeating ourselves but it's it's really just a wonderful way to have as i said i think last time the the right wing metal gear fans who think that well you can't actually say that that uh that kojima thinks that che is good because big boss is actually the bad guy it's again like big boss is not the bad guy not in this game it's a Mm -hmm. it's a deliberate misreading like i don't give that any credence at all it's not even like you don't even get the benefit of like mis- just misunderstanding it. like no they understood it fine they just are choosing to to pretend it means something else 
because they're pathetic people who have no who have no coherent worldview, and they think that this game supports them, and this series supports what they believe in any way, and it doesn't. I've come to find, you know, some pretty solid left wing, left wing ish Metal Gear Solid fans recently. You know, Brian included, uh, Shane Smith and Mark Normandin, who have been guests on this podcast. Also, PD. Oh yeah, PD as well, and Sam. Uh, pretty much everyone we've had will. No, we don't give Sam credit. He will listen to this anyway. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, screw you. <laughs> uh, but uh, going back fifteen or so years, when I was uh, on Facebook, still, uh, I was in some Metal Gear fan groups and it was definitely right wing central um all they mostly did was post their modified assault rifles and shit like that yeah, yep. and i'm like this is not what metal gear solid's about um but you know i can't speak for the worst fans of any one thing but i don't know i, I just want to say that those people in general like they just have it must be difficult for them knowing that 95 percent of the art that's ever been made is made by people who hate them and wish that they would stop existing that's got to be tough to wrap your head around which is why they, they it's just why they, yeah. I think subconsciously they they just are anti art. It's like you see like this is a different different subset of people, but I, I love that there was that conversation a few weeks ago about that uh the fuck is that show that Kevin Costner's in? Damn it. Yellowstone, is that it? Uh, yeah, it sounds like yeah. A, a, a people who have watched it said it's pretty good, but you see all these think pieces about like why isn't the liberal media talking about this show? And it's like like it's because the people who are watching it Either the people who are politically active or just like your uncle, like everyone's dad who watches CBS shit all the time. They may be watching that show and they may be really into that show. They are not talking about it. That's the difference. Like that's what – that's people always talk about like – it's just hard to describe. But who – like why is this such and such being talked about by the – it's not the – I don't want to say it's the – um uh academia but it kind of is like that's kind of the same thing we do a little bit mm -hmm. like internet pop culture stuff and it's because like it's what we choose to talk about like people talk about the green knight like you're you know somebody's dad probably never heard of the green knight and will never watch it but people but we talked about it because that's what we chose to talk about like if it's, i don't know it's just it's it's really annoying to see like why are people talking about ncis because those people don't give a shit about they just want to consume art. They don't care about in, in, ingesting it or, or or doing anything to to think. They don't think about it for any, any amount of time after they stop watching it. And that Yellowstone show sounds pretty good. And there are people who are writing about it, and good for them. Like if you are enjoying it, then write about it. But like the vast majority of people in this country do not do that with art. So like that's why that's not being mm -hmm. talked about. Sorry, I don't. <laughs> it's 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 pretty easy to understand. Like if the people who watch these things cared about art in that way at all they would do it but they don't so they don't they don't talk about these things at all they just it goes in it enters their brains and leaves their brains as soon as it's done and that's how that's how the vast majority of this country consumes art that's why cbs is america's most watched network it's not america's most thought about network nobody gives a shit but it's america's most watched because it's always on in the background when you go to your dad's house and he forgot to turn it off or whatever at least that's what my dad does it's the ultimate junk food it's stuff that gives you no substance in terms of artistic value but you can still consume it for the empty calories that it is the thing is even then though it's not like people aren't willing to talk about empty calorie shit i mean how much mcu discourse do are we subjected to mm -hmm. and like some of it's worth it or star wars yeah. at this point some of it's yeah. worth it but most of it isn't like i'm gonna be honest i i still watch the stuff and like the no, stuff but good. there was a lot of discussion about hawkeye like hawkeye is not a complicated show guys it's not really necessary to talk about this show like that but you know we have to now because 
because uh, Marvel people must they, they simply they are not happy with it having uh, complete dominance over like movie release schedules over the pop culture. They're not they're not, they're not happy being the pop the monoculture the the pop monoculture. No, they must be recognized as serious art also. But also, if you criticize it like it's serious art, then you're just hating on it because you don't like things that are popular. That's a different thing entirely, and I, I think the MCU. I would say that MC. I'm not. I'm not trying to equate MCU, the average MCU fan, with like alt right shitheads. I don't think there's that much overlap there. At least there wasn't. There hasn't been since they made. They put a woman in the movies. A woman <laughs> showed up, and then all right guys were like, "No thanks," and they they peeled off. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Che Guevara. We'll cut the Che chat there for now. We will likely talk about this going forward, and again when we wrap this game and have our normal chats on imperialism at the end. But I do want to say, for as much fun as we have clowning in Kojima as a 13-year-old boy or whatever, that's all it is, clowning. Between the work we've done on this pod and having read his collected essays, the man is incredibly learned, well-read, and is not someone who just regurgitates other people's talking points. Everything in these Metal Gear games is well-considered, even if some of it only exists because it's cool or reminds him of his favorite movies. And using his platform as maybe the most famous game developer to provide an antidote of anti-American hegemony in a medium plagued by jingoism and xenophobia like Call of Duty, all I gotta say is, here's to you, Mr. Hideo. Who are you? Why are you here? I'm Snake. Serviente. Snake? Could it be the great Kasike has come to us? That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by signing up for my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all my other projects. Which, hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm a new man, El Hombre Duevo. Take over. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like, review, and subscribe wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices we